We are drawing to the end of Abraham's journey. We've been on it for a little while. We're going to have one more message in the series. But we come to Genesis 25, and uh, literally we are reading the obituary of Abraham. You know what an obituary is. It's uh, that news article uh, that will report on the recent death of, of a person, and, and typically in, in various forms it'll give uh, some kind of an account of the person's life and some information there uh, about the upcoming funeral. Well, here's Abraham's, uh, recorded for us here in Genesis chapter 25. He lived 175 years, we're told. Abraham had been born in Ur, which was a leading city in his day. Uh, One of the most ancient uh, documented civilizations here on earth. Uh, And Abraham lived there, and he had been born there. And he lived the first 75 years of his life there. He died, however, 500 miles away from there, in the land of Canaan the land to which he had migrated, and the land in which he lived for a hundred years of his life. We're told that he was buried beside Sarah by uh, Isaac and Ishmael, his sons, in the cave of Machpelah. So this was essentially his funeral, uh, a, a respectable, decent burial. And so these two brothers born by different mothers, but the same father, came together to bury the body of their father in what uh, had become and what was going to be their ancestral uh, burial site. Uh, The only piece of land there in the promised land that Abraham actually owned. That's where he was laid to rest. They were told in verse 8 that he died a blessed man. He died a blessed man. In between his birth and uh, his death, he lived a life that was summed up this way in the text. He died in a good old age, an old man, and full of years. Now, that, that is more than just trying to tell us that, that he died a respectable death. It's It's more than trying to tell us that, yeah, Abraham was old. He was old when he died. There's a little bit more wrapped up in that expression. He died in a a good old age. And the the, the use of the word good there, it it points us to something of, of value. Something that's good is something of value. The life of Abraham was... A valuable life. And in that sense, it was a life well lived by God's standards. That word for good is also a moral description, the opposite of evil. It's significant here because we're still in the book of Genesis, which is early on in the story, and and the the story hasn't been real pleasant up to this point. We had two beautiful chapters in one and two, and it all fell apart in chapter three. The fall of man and the sinfulness of man and the rebellion of man against God. A world that became so evil that God judged the world with a flood. Sort of started again with a 
with the family of Noah, only to have them migrate and, and become the Tower of Babel, which was a place of rebellion against God once again. And it's on the heels of that that God says, Abraham, you're my man. And calls him out to do a new and a good work through Abraham. It was a good life, not without its moments. He was not a perfect man, and, and, and God in his infinite wisdom has let us know that in the record that's been left of his life. It was a good life. It was a life that was full of years. That is, his was a, his was a full life. It, it's a word that speaks of satisfaction. His was a, his was a satisfied life. When Abraham breathed his last, it was said of him, he lived a full and a satisfied life. Interesting, that same description is given of Isaac later on. It's the same description that's given of King David. It's the same description that is given of Job. That when they came to the end of their days, what could be said of them among many things, but what could be said of them is that they lived satisfying lives. This is the the summation. These were blessed individuals. Abraham lived and died a blessed man. So what is it that made his life good? What is it that made his life satisfying? What is it that marked him out as as a blessed man? And in the scriptures, to be a blessed individual is a person who is to be marked with the favor of God. What made Abraham's life good and full? Was it the accumulation of possessions? Abraham had a lot. He had a lot of possessions. He was a wealthy man by the standards of his day. And he had so much that even after he gave gifts to the sons of his concubines, we read in verse 5, he still had left this huge inheritance that he gave to his son Isaac. Everything about Abraham's life manifested in that ancient Near Eastern day that this man is a man who has been blessed by his God or gods, whoever they may be, as the, as, as the surrounding ancient world looked at him. He showed every evidence. And you, you look at his household, you look at his possessions, you look at his, at his wealth. This is a blessed man. And so was it the accumulation of, of possessions that, that when he died, he had a lot? Is that Is that what marked him out as having lived a good and full life? Was it the number of years he lived? 175, it's a lot of years. It's a lot of years. Uh, Even even by the standard of of his time. You read in, in opening chapters of Genesis, like Genesis 4, and you find people living like almost a millennium. You know, living 7, 800, 900 years and What's 175? Well, it's interesting. If you go to Genesis 6-3, by the time you get to Genesis 6-3, that's sort of reduced like to 120 years. Abraham lived 55 years beyond that. He lived a long life. Certainly that's a, that's a mark of, of a full and satisfying life. I mean, after all, the psalmist said in Psalm 91-16 that, that, that God would, give, would satisfy those who trust in him with long life. So was it the number of his years that marked him out as this man who lived a good and a full life? Or maybe it was his family. I mean, after all, 
Uh, Abraham had, had gone a lot of years wanting, wanting a child, wanting a son, but having none. At the end of his life, according to Genesis 25 and some chapters before, he had eight sons, each of whom are going to become at least chieftains of their tribal groups and leaders of nations, eight sons that he genuinely cared about. I mean, we're, we know that he, he loved Isaac uh, uniquely. He cared about Ishmael. It really, it really wrecked him up when he had to send Ishmael away. He didn't want to do it. The, these six sons that he has by, by Keturah, while he's still alive, he makes sure that they receive at least gifts from his hand. He had a faithful wife, Sarah, had been at his side. She's been gone for 38 years now. He had two concubines, Hagar and Keturah, which is problematic. It is problematic. He was a man of his times. We know from Scripture that family is a blessing. We're told, Proverbs 18, 22, that the man who finds a wife finds what's good. The psalmist said in Psalm 127, verse 3, that children are a gift and a reward from the Lord, and the one who has a full complement of children is a blessed person. So, what marked him out as a, as a full and satisfied and blessed man? Family. Is that it? Was it the realization of his dreams? I mean, here he migrated to a new land and a new life. And he acquired great wealth, as we said, and he had many sons. He had a large household. Listen, Abraham was living the ancient Near Eastern dream. He'd achieved it. And we know that he hadn't even experienced all that, this, that, that, that was going to come of all this, but he certainly got a taste of it. So is, is this the essence of, of what it means to live a good a life, a full life, a blessed life. Well, let me ask you this question. What if you die penniless? What if you live only 33 years or 16 years or five years? What if you never marry and have children? Can your life still be a good, full, satisfying, blessed life? Can I remind you what the New Testament says about possessions? It says, don't put your hope in them and hold them very loosely. And don't necessarily consider them the mark of unique blessing of the Lord. In fact, Jesus warned, don't lay up treasures here on earth. And he told a parable, Jesus told a parable one day about a rich guy who had more than he knew what to do with, and now he was all set for his, his retirement. He was, he was financially secure. He was going to kick back and enjoy it, if, if you will. He was going to enjoy the good life, the satisfied life, because he had all the wealth he needed, and Jesus called him a fool because he was going to die that night. And lose his soul. Can I remind you what the New Testament says about longevity? 
the Apostle Paul speaking to some Christian leaders in Acts chapter 20, said, none of these things move me. That is, and he was just talking about the Holy Spirit had, had revealed to Paul that, that jail and suffering lay ahead of him. And Paul said, these things, don't, these things don't, don't move me off course. And he says this, nor do I count my life dear to myself. If early death comes in the will of God for the cause of Christ, so be it. Jesus lived 33 years on this earth. Never married, in spite of what ancient, weird, false writings may claim. Never owned a home, never owned a piece of property. As far as I know, died penniless. Did he live a full life? Many of you, but maybe not all of you, have heard of Jim Elliot, who was born, he was born into a Christian household. And what I mean by a Christian household is his parents were believers. His parents were saved people. They put their faith in Jesus Christ. His parents took their kids to church. They read the Bible to their children in their home. They encouraged their children to live for Christ. So Jim Elliot professed faith in Christ as a child. Childhood professions of faith in Christ matter. He was, he was a talented young man. Demonstrated aptitudes in writing. He was an athlete. He showed himself to be a, to be a, a capable actor. He was good at public speaking. His parents and his friends encouraged him to become a youth pastor uh, here in the U.S., but he, he declined that pursuit, feeling the youth of America were already, what he said, well-fed. They're well-cared for. And he pursued international missions instead. And in time, that pursuit brought him into contact with an isolated indigenous tribe in Ecuador, a tribe to whom he endeavored to bring the gospel of Jesus Christ. And at the age of 28... Jim Elliot was killed by that tribe along with his four companions who were there to proclaim the gospel. During his senior year at Wheaton College, he wrote this in his journal. He said, it seems impossible that I am so near my senior year at this place. And truthfully, it hasn't the glow about it that I rather expected. There is no such thing as attainment in this life. As soon as one arrives at a long-coveted position, he only jacks up his desire another notch or so and looks for a higher achievement, a process which is ultimately suspended by the intervention of death. Life is truly likened to a rising vapor, coiling, evanescent, shifting. May the Lord teach us what it means to live in terms of the end. He goes on, he makes his ministers a flame of fire. Am I ignitable? God, deliver me from the dread asbestos of other things. Saturate me with the oil of the Spirit that I may be a flame. But flame is transient, often short-lived. Canst thou bear this, my soul? Short life? 
In me there dwells the spirit of the great short-lived, whose zeal for God's house consumed him. Make me thy fuel, flame of God. And then this statement, God, this prayer, I pray thee, light these idle sticks of my life, and may I burn for thee. Consume my life, my God, for it is thine. I seek not a long life, but a full one, like you, Lord Jesus. New Testament and Christ doesn't necessarily put a ton of stock in number of years. 28 years and he lived a full life. Can I remind you what the New Testament says about family? It reminds us that family is precious, yes. It reminds us that family is a stewardship from the Lord. But the New Testament makes it very clear that family is not ultimate, according to Jesus. In fact, Jesus one day, with his mother and brothers on the fringe of the crowd, said, Who's my mother and who are my brothers? His answer, whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. He valued family. He's saying they're not ultimate. And Jesus said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Harsh words in our ears Simply saying, family, father, mother, wife, children, brothers, sisters, as precious as they are, are not ultimate. There's something greater, someone greater. What does the New Testament say about our dreams? Well, really nothing. But it doesn't promise that just because you believe you can fly, you'll fly. It doesn't teach that if you can conceive it, you can achieve it. Because you can achieve outrageous worldly success success and die an empty person. You can achieve everything that you set out to achieve in this life, but in the end, if you set out to achieve empty things, you will end up an empty person. So there's got to be something more than length of life and possessions accumulated in this life and family and relationships, even the realization of your life's goals and dreams. There's got to be something more. What was it that, that ultimately marked Abraham's life as a good, blessed, satisfied, fulfilled life when he breathed his last? Well, we read his obituary in Genesis 25, but can I read you his epitaph in Hebrews 11 and verse 10? He waited for the city, which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Yeah, God chose to give him possessions and longevity and family but his eyes were on something greater. Something greater. That's why he left his homeland in the first place. 
and he never looked back. He didn't look back because Abraham spent his life looking up. And, and that life, if you will, how this framed and shaped his life, this epitaph, really is, is expounded a little bit further in Hebrews 11 in verses 13 through 16 where we, we read these words. All these people, and, and in that context, you know, Abraham is one of those. All these people died, laid in their burial places. They died still believing what God had promised them. Abraham didn't realize experientially everything that God said was going to happen as a result of his life. He began to experience it. He began to taste it. When he died, it hadn't all happened. And yet when he died, he was believing what God had promised. They did not receive what was promised, okay, which was going to be the blessing of the world through Jesus Christ. It hadn't happened yet. They didn't receive what was promised, but they saw it from a distance and welcomed it. They agreed that they were foreigners and nomads here on earth. They recognized that, that while they were dwelling on this earth, this earth ultimately wasn't home. Obviously, people who say such, such things are looking forward to a country they can call their own. Listen, if they had longed for the country they came from, they could have gone back. But they were looking for a better place, a heavenly homeland. That's why God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. This is what was consuming Abraham. And the awareness of this, and, and if you will, clarity of a vision that came as a result of his faith. It continued to become clearer to clear, clearer and clearer to him as he journeyed the, the, this life. I mean, there were, there were falls and stumbles along the way, but as Abraham grew, as he grew older, the, the vision of this city, the vision of the realization of this promise of God became clearer and clearer in his mind and in his heart. He could look at all the stuff he had, the possessions, family, the status, the years. He said, this isn't it. That's it. That's it. You see, Abraham's good, full life flowed out of his faith in God, which constantly reminded him that there was more to life than meets the eye. There was more to it there was more to it than getting up and coming out of his tent and looking at this, at this, at this panorama of this household and, and these possessions and, and this, this evidence, if you will, of material blessing. And, and even as he gets older in life, seeing, you know, he waited so long for a son and he's, he's drawn to the end and he's got eight. So he comes out and he sees that and, and he's realizing this is not it. More, there's more than these possessions. There's more than family. There's more than what 175 years of life on this earth could bring him. And he lived for that more because he believed what God promised. 
And he believed it so deeply, he saw it. He agreed with God, and he looked for what God had promised. Listen, living by faith reminds us that there is more to life than what we see. There is more to life than, than, than what, what, what happened to, as, as you looked around this past week and as you were listening and as you were interacting, the experiences of this past week. There is more. There is more than that. There's more than that. Whatever it is you're going through right now, there's more. There's something more. There's something better. It's the promise of God. I was thinking about that this past week. We were out at the out in Toledo for our, our state conference for our association of churches. And the drive home on Wednesday was beautiful. It was just coming along the uh, Interstate 80 there. And the sky was, I mean, as clear blue as it could be. And, and this past week, and I think we sort of hit that peak of the fall colors. And so against the blue sky, there was the brilliant fall colors. And, and, I, and I just... I didn't have my radio or music on. I often, I often drive in silence because it's one of the few times you actually get some silence. And I can think. And, and, and I was reminded of how beautiful this earth is. It really is a beautiful world. And I'm, and I'm reminded that life on this good old earth brings so many experiences that lift the soul. And there is so much about this, about life on this earth that, that can leave us in wonder and in awe. And so as I was just thinking about that, enjoying the beauty, I, I just was reminded that there's a world even more beautiful. There's a world even more beautiful than anything here. But we just don't see it. We don't see it. Abraham saw it. I don't know how all that worked. I, you know, I, it's not, we, don't have to, we don't have to try to figure, figure that out. He saw it. And so often we don't. It, it seems that the tendency here in life of this, uh, on this earth is sort of turns our eyes downward and it's it's almost like I was thinking as I'm looking at this beautiful sky and these colors sometimes it's almost like if we're not thinking it stops there it's like there's this this shield and 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 our in our in our vision and our understanding of life just sort of stops there and I was just reminding you know above the beauty of this scene of nature, above the beauty of that crystal clear blue sky is something even more wonderful. There's something more. There's something more. This isn't it. There's more. And, and, and the beauty of what is to come is indescribable. It is indescribable. Now, I was just trying to weakly describe to you the scene that I'm looking at as I'm driving on Interstate 80. 
You turn to Scripture, and, and, and there are several places in Scripture where we're under the inspiration of the Spirit of God that the, the writers give us descriptions. But you know, I'm reminded that, that the descriptions are limited to our human perceptions. So when they describe that reality, they really use words and pictures and ideas that, that, that we can resonate with. So, so they, they use words. When they describe that, that, that the place and that life to come, they, they use words that, that, that convey the idea of the most costly, valuable, glittering things we can imagine. And that's why you'll find descriptions of pure gold and brilliant gemstones and flashes of lightning and colorful rainbows and, and pure crystal. Describing, if you will, that city. Describing, if you will, the presence of God. Because that's the language, that's, those are the words that are available to them to try to say, how do you communicate to human beings the, the, the most beautiful things that you can imagine? These are the kinds of words you use, the kinds of, the kinds of comparisons you draw. You know, I don't know, sometimes to the earthly mind, if we're honest, that can seem a bit gaudy. Streets of gold, you know, Everything crystal clear and, you know, walls with gemstones, you know, fastened into them. That, but that, that's not the point. The point is that what is being described is actually something that is indescribably beautiful. And so we'll use, we'll use all the words and descriptions we can find to convey to you something that's stunningly beautiful. And that place is stunningly beautiful because it is filled with the beauty and the glory of God. That's the more. <laughs> That's the more. It's beyond what you're looking at when you're looking around here and you're going about your daily life. Taking care of family and going to work and working for all the things we try to achieve in this life. This is the more. And Abraham somehow in some way saw it. I grew up uh, and was introduced at a young age to the book Pilgrim's Progress. My mom had gotten a, a copy that was really um, written for children because if you pick up a copy of Pilgrim's Progress, which I encourage you to do, published in 1678, and it's like reading a rather old version of King James Version of the Bible. It's using old English language in it. So um, my first exposure was through a children's edition if you've never read it, read it. It's an allegory. That is, if you will, the, the, the allegory, the, the, the literal, physical level of action that you read, it's intended as a picture of something else. It's a picture using, using literal kinds of images and, and activities to, to picture some spiritual realities of, of the dangerous journey from earth, which is in the story called the city of destruction to heaven which is called the celestial city bunyan tells it as if it is a dream and as if he's the narrator in the closing scene the protagonist who is named christian and his and his traveling companion named hopeful have crossed over the river of death and they're standing there on its bank, and they begin their approach 
to the gate of the celestial city. The climactic conclusion of the story. I've read this passage at funerals, and I probably will read it at funerals again in the future. But let me read to you what he wrote. On the bank, other shining men welcomed them. We are ministering angels sent to help those who are heirs of salvation, they said. Joyfully, they led the pilgrims up the hill to the gate. Though the hill was steep, the pilgrims went with ease, agility, and speed because they had left their mortal bodies in the river. Now while they were thus drawing towards the gate, behold, a company of the heavenly host came out to meet them. There came out also at this time several of the king's trumpeters, clothed in white and shining raiment, who with melodious noises and loud made even the heavens to echo with their sound. These trumpeters saluted the pilgrims with 10,000 welcomes from the world, with shouting and sound of trumpets, signifying how welcome they were into their company and with what gladness they came to meet them. Now when they came to the gate, the pilgrims each handed their certificate which they had received in the beginning. These therefore were carried into the king, who when he read them said, Where are the pilgrims? To whom it was answered, They are standing outside the gate. The king then commanded, open the gate. Now I saw in my dream that these pilgrims went in at the gate. And as they entered, they were transfigured. And they had raiment put on that shone like gold. Then I heard in my dream that all the bells in the cities rang again for joy. And that it was said within, enter ye into the joy of our Lord. I also heard the men themselves as they sang with loud voice saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be unto him that sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb forever and ever. Now just as the gates were opened to let them in, I looked in after them. And behold, the city shone like the sun. The streets also were paved with gold, and in them walked many men and women with crowns on their heads, palms in their hands, and golden harps to sing praise with. There were also of them that had wings, and they answered one another without without intermission, saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. And after that, they shut up the gates, which... When I had seen, I wished myself among them. The end of Abraham's journey was simply the end of waiting for him. By faith, he had lived his life based on God's promise of a better promised land that superseded Canaan. He breathed his last, he closed his eyes in the earthly land of promise and crossed the river of death. And when he opened his eyes, he was there in the place he'd seen by faith, but now by sight. Abraham's faith in God's promise governed his life and and therefore he really did believe that the things which are seen are temporary. The things which are not seen are eternal. And if you believe that, that does something to your bucket list. It has to arrange our priorities. It has to affect our relationships. It has to affect how we interact with this world. It just has to. This is not escapism. 
This is reality. This life that we're living here on this earth is not the premier event. It's preparation for the real thing. Are you ready? Are you ready? And church, let's go all in for this life. Let's go all in for this life. Faith that interacts and takes on the responsibilities that we have here for the sake of what's to come, for the glory of God. Help us, Lord, I pray. Help us, I pray, to live this life. Faith, Lord, it's, it's, it's not a cliche. It's not an empty expression. This is the life you've called us to, trusting you, believing you, acting every day upon your word, the declarations you have made, the promises you have given, living every day in light of the fact of Christ being our supreme glory and joy and and, and beauty and our soul satisfaction. May he be what we pursue. May he be the one who is first and foremost in our minds and hearts every day. May we look forward to that city where we will see you, where we will be with you for all time. Lord God, this morning, if there's one who's entered this gathering not knowing Jesus Christ and his salvation, God, today, by faith, may they believe your promise that there is forgiveness through Christ. There is life everlasting. There is a way back to you. And might they call upon you today. God, may we, your children, have a clear vision of where we're headed. And let that mark us every day of our lives, no matter how many days or years it is you give to us. Every day. Every day. This we ask in the name of Jesus. Amen. We may be of help to you.